You might have seen recently um, the Try Praying adverts popping up uh, everywhere again. They kind of seem to disappear for a few years and now they're back on the back of every bus. So you're stuck in traffic and right here is a smiling, overly happy face with the words, try praying, it's easier than you think. And that's right, praying is easier than many people think. Prayer is not just a pastime for the holiest of monks. I uh, read this week that uh, more than half of the UK population admit to praying regularly, even though less than a third of them are religious in the loosest sense of that word. More than, I mean, the majority of people in the world and in history are praying people. It's easier than you think, but prayer is also richer, more of a struggle, more of a kind of lifelong pursuit than we tend to think. There's a reason that the disciples pulled Jesus aside and asked him their famous question, Lord, how do we pray? Please teach us to pray. They understood that prayer is more than just a few nice words before a big day at the office. They understood that learning to pray is a central part of learning to follow Jesus. In fact, Eugene Peterson, the late American pastor, he writes this incredible thing where he says that he considered his whole job, his whole vocation as a pastor to be summed up in the task of teaching God's people to pray. Teaching God's people to pray. And I think he thought that because to paraphrase Richard Foster, prayer is the place where our hearts find their true home. It's the place where our hearts find their true home. And so over the next eight or so weeks, uh, with a break next week as Rigby Wallace visits us, we're going to be spending some time digging into eight psalms that help us to learn to pray in all the circumstances of life. We've summed up what we think we'll see in the title of this preaching series, Out of the Depths. We think we read the psalms. How do we pray? We pray out of the depths. We pray out of the depths of our circumstances. Psalm 130, the psalmist writes, Lord, I cry to you out of the pit. We're going to look at what it means to pray in seasons of depression and joy and longing and injustice. But we also pray out of the depths of our hearts in complete honesty and vulnerability before God. Walter Brueggemann, he's an Old Testament scholar, he writes this, he says, to bring together the boldness of the Psalms and the extremities of our experience, that is the work of prayer. The boldness of the Psalms and the extremities of our experience, that is the work of prayer. So I'm excited over the the summer to to learn together. How do we pray to let Jesus teach us to answer that question again in our day? But before we look at that, before we get into the next seven weeks, how do we pray? We have to ask a very simple question. How do we get into the life with God that the Psalms kind of presupposes? We're going to begin our series today just by reading Psalm number one together. The first Psalm has been called the gatekeeper of the Psalms. It stands at the right at the front of the Psalms and says, if you want in, you have to come through me. Someone teaches us how to get into the life with God that the Psalms tells us about. So here's where we're going today. First, we're just going to see that there are two ways of life. There are two ways of life, the life with God and the life apart from God. And then we're going to spend just a little bit of time looking at the lifestyle of the life with God. I wonder if you'd stand with me as we read Psalm 1, as we read God's word. 
So let me read from Psalm 1. It says, How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked, or stand in the pathway with sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are here with us in this room. We yield ourselves to your voice today. We ask that you would shape our minds, shape our hearts, change us at our very core as we listen to your word today. Draw near to us, Lord, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please take a seat. On the 15th century, the uh, French philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal uh, wrote this little book about happiness. And happiness, he kind of sums up as the sole pursuit of every single person. Here's how he puts it in that book. He says, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man. In simple terms, this 15th century mathematician is making a really obvious but profound observation. We are all joy seekers. Stay-at-home mums, bankers, runners, plumbers, students, pastors, we're all after joy. We're all joy seekers. And Psalm 1 speaks directly into our pursuit of joy. Your Bible probably says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the path of the wicked. Translations differ, but the the English word happy, which is probably better than blessed, does need a caveat. It's not the kind of happiness that has this like cheap hit of dopamine. It's not the happiness you feel when you nestle in like we did last night with the Chinese to watch TV. It's not that. It's a kind of deep set joy, contentment and flourishing. It captures something of Everything in life being just as it should be. How happy is the one who... That's how the poem begins. I wonder how you would finish that sentence. How happy is the one with enough money to not think about money? How happy is the one who has a really fulfilling career? How happy is the one with a great morning routine? It's not uncommon, I think we see it all the time now, to hear about the secret to happiness. There's alternatives to Psalm 1 popping up all over the place. How happy is the one who fill in the plank? We hear this all the time. This isn't a new thing. Ancient philosophers called this the good life. And they debated for centuries, what is the good life? And we don't have time to talk about what they believed. But today, the prevailing view is probably what Charles Taylor calls expressive individualism. It's to say that the good life is found in 
self-actualization and being who I really am and expressing myself at the deepest level. The author Mandy Hall puts it this way in a blog. She says, happiness is an inside job. That's the most common view we hear today. Happiness is an inside job. But before we get to the biblical view of happiness and flourishing, the Psalm's going to draw our attention to the futility of looking for happiness anywhere other than God. It's going to draw our attention to how worthless it is to look for happiness inside. How happy is the man, it says, who does not walk in the advice of the wicked? Because, verse 4, the wicked are like chaff that the wind blows away. Now that is a big word. It's not the kind of word that we use today, wicked. We might be helped if we think about the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament. He spoke about God as this kind of bubbling spring of fresh water. He says, come, come and drink from the spring of God. And yet he starts to weep and mourn because all the people around him aren't drinking from God. They're drinking from dried up springs. Dried up springs that look like idols and other gods. In the 21st century, we might not be tempted to bow down to a gold icon. But Tim Keller applies this idea of idols for us today when he writes this. He says, what is an idol? It is anything that absorbs your heart. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. So if the wicked are those who trust in other gods, and our gods aren't little idols, but are kind of flimsier gods like sex and money and success, then the first thing we need to face this morning is this hard reality. If the thing that you look to on a day-to-day basis for meaning and flourishing is anything other than Jesus, you find yourself in the category of the wicked. And to be very clear, that is every single person in this room's natural inclination. It's not a word reserved in the Bible for the Hitlers and Mussolinis of this world. Martin Luther, the reformer, described this as man curved in on himself. He meant by that that our natural bent as human beings is not out of ourselves towards God, but inwards towards our own happiness, towards our own glory and joy, not outwards towards others and God, but inwards. It's part of what the Bible means when it uses the word sin. Today, this doesn't just come out in the kind of abstract theological discussion. It comes out in the everyday ways that we look for satisfaction and utterly fail. The journalist Anne Helen Peterson, she she writes this article where she kind of moans a lot. She moans a lot about where the things that we look to to fix what she thinks are social problems today. She writes this article about burnout. But I think we could change that language and just say, joy. Where do we look for joy? And let me just paraphrase her. She says, you don't fix burnout, but let's change that to you don't find joy by going on vacation. She says, you don't fix it through life hacks like Inbox Zero or by using a meditation app for five minutes in the morning or doing Sunday meal prep for the entire family or starting a bullet journal. You don't fix it with a vacation or an adult coloring book or anxiety baking or the Pomodoro technique or overnight oats. Her language is more colorful. I cut out all the effing and blinding. 
We need to be honest with ourselves. Too often, when we feel a lack of joy, we don't turn towards Jesus, we turn towards bullet journaling and overnight oats, and we try and get ourselves together. But most of what passes today is the secret to happiness. It's just a modern repackaging of Jeremiah's empty cisterns that hold no water and can't satisfy. We need to keep moving because the psalm is not just concerned about our problems in life. Look at verse 5 with me. It says, The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the writer of this poem, the real tragedy of misplaced trust isn't that it makes our life worse, because sometimes it doesn't. I know plenty of non-Christians that are probably happier than me. The real tragedy of misplaced trust is that it is the beginning of a long road that leads to death. Abby and I moved house recently, and if you've spoken to me even for one minute over the last month, you'll know that our house is covered, or it was, covered in tiles. I've spent so many minutes over the last month just systematically going from room to room just chipping away tiles trying to get them off the walls trying to remove this awful interior design the absolute delight for me has been that she wasn't very good at tiling the previous owner so i can literally give them one hit with a hammer and they all come tumbling off they're terribly fitted a good well-fixed tile by somebody who knows what they're doing would not come so easily find a kind of similar picture in this psalm. It goes on to talk about a well-rooted tree, but it compares that tree to chaff. It's the opposite of well-rooted. It just kind of blows away at the slightest touch. Those who put their trust anywhere other than God are like poorly fixed tiles. You nudge them and they fall. The book of Proverbs in the Bible is very explicit. It says this, there is a way that seems right to people, but it leads to death. Jesus himself put it this way, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. You know, death and judgment, as much as they are the taboo topic in our secular day, are very real. The uh, novelist Marianne Kutz, she uh, went through the experience of her husband being diagnosed with brain cancer and sadly passing away. And she wrote a memoir about her husband's journey. She writes this at the moment that they sat in a doctor's office and received his kind of terminal diagnosis. She writes, something has happened. We learn something. We are mortal. You might say you know this, but you don't. The news falls neatly between one moment and another, and it is is as if a new physical law has been described for us bespoke. Absolute as all the others are, but terrifyingly casual, it says you will lose everything that catches your eye. You will lose everything that catches your eye. Here is an atheist paraphrasing the words of Psalm 1. The wicked are not so, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Charles Taylor, again, he calls this the hauntedness of the secular age. We can fill our lives with all the distractions and the toys that we want, but the looming reality of death will not go away. You will lose everything that catches your eye. 
It seems strange to start a poem that begins with, how happy is the man with death? We have to start there because each of us, apart from God, fit the description. We're here for 70 years if we're lucky, and then we're gone. But Psalm 1 points us to a life that is much, much more than 70 years and then gone. It leads us to the life with God, a life of flourishing and joy that Jesus described as life in abundance. Life in abundance. That's where we're going to turn just now. Have a look at verse 2 with me. It says, His delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. He's like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. This poem leads us to a really simple observation. It stands right in the middle of philosophers and lifestyle bloggers and it says the secret to happiness isn't that complicated after all. The good life isn't found in behavior, it's found in beholding. It's found in beholding God and his word and being saturated in him and all that he is and has done for us. Our best friend C.S. Lewis puts it so helpfully. He says, if you want to get warm, if you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to get wet, you have to get into the water. If you want joy, you must get close to or even into the thing that has it. We get to the good life by drawing near to the one who made life. We get to joy by drawing near to the most joyful being in the universe. C.S. Lewis was right not to stop at just getting near to joy. This isn't like gathering around a campfire and toasting our hands. The biblical worldview doesn't say you get joy by getting near to Jesus, but by getting into him. The Apostle Paul's favorite way of describing life as a Christian is with two words, in Christ. He never really uses the word Christian. He says, to you who are in Christ. So Jesus himself was describing in John 15 when he said this, quote, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, then you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not abide in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. It's really not hard to see that Jesus probably had this psalm in mind when he was speaking. He is the one that this all points to. See, the secret to happiness isn't behavior modification. It's not a set of practices. It's not believing the right things about God. The secret to happiness is to abide in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, when we come to him in faith, we don't just find that we're accepted and loved and forgiven by God. Those things are true. But we find that the location of our life has been moved from outside of Christ, in sin, to in Christ, in his goodness. God looks at us and sees Jesus and everything that's true of him becomes true of you if you know him. The author Richard Lovelace puts it like this. He says, spiritual life flows out of union with Christ. 
not merely imitation of Christ. That means that trying really hard to be like Jesus is not how you get to joy. You get to joy by laying down your arms and saying, I trust you. Give me joy. You know, in contrast to the idea that happiness is an inside job, true and lasting, flourishing in life is found outside of ourselves, in the person of Christ. Because he destroyed death, death is not looming on the horizon for Christians. Because he has paid the price for your sin, Christians can walk in freedom, in a newness of life. Because he has eternal communion with God, we know that our relationship with God can't be broken. Because he is from eternity the Son of God, we know that God doesn't just pretend to be our Father, no, he actually is our Father. Here's what we find. The two ways to live of Psalm 1 depart, and they depart forever. There's no third option. Where the chaff will be blown away in the winds of death and judgment. Those who are like a well-rooted tree abiding in Christ can't be moved. Can't be moved. And all of this, all of this is the source of what those philosophers called the good life. It's the source of what Jesus called the abundant life, what the writer Henry Nouwen called life as God's beloved. Union with Christ is the fountainhead of the eternal kind of life, the life of intimate prayer that we're going to unpack in this series. You know, far from the empty springs of this world, when we drink deeply from Jesus, we don't come away thirsty. We come away satisfied with our peace and our joy quenched, with our thirst for meaning and lasting contentment in life quenched. I wonder if you're here and you can relate to the feeling of searching endlessly for meaning what that author said in, in new morning routines or journaling techniques or diets or all the nonsense that we think can fill that gap. Maybe you've come to the end of your rope and you've run out of ideas. I've been there. The God who made you this morning is saying, come to me. Come to me through Jesus. Johnny read when we came to pray before the service this morning, Matthew 11, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Come to him. In Jesus, you don't just find existence, you find life. Come to him. We're going to come back now to the thrust of our sermon series. That question, how do we pray? What does it look like to live from union with Christ into a life of prayer from the depths? So before we finish, let's look at what we could call the lifestyle of the Psalms. We've seen that there's two ways to live. Let's just spend five minutes just honing in on the life with God. I just want to set us up for the kind of practices of prayer that we're going to explore over the next seven or eight weeks. Let's just think quickly again about C.S. Lewis's analogy of heat, the fire. 
And another thing about our house, Abby said to me when I was despairing four weeks ago about our ugly, awful house, she said, just watch, you're going to get some good sermon illustrations from this house. Here's two in one sermon. It was really cheap. (laughs) They're hard to come by these days. There's tiles everywhere, but we also have a conservatory. And the white tiles in the house mean that the house is absolutely freezing. Two weeks ago, when we had the one hot day that we've had this summer, you would be in the, in the house and literally need a blanket. It doesn't hold any heat. And yet there's a conservatory, and so if you walk into the house through the conservatory, you, you get hit by the heat, then you open the front door and it's like going from an oven to a fridge. The reason for that is because conservatories are designed to hold heat. They're designed to attract the sun and hold the warmth of it. White tiles are designed to do the opposite. They're designed to repel and bounce heat away. Now, just the practices of the Christian faith, they work like that. They're not the heat. When we pray, that isn't the source of God's joy in our life. It's it's like a conservatory. It draws and attracts and holds the heat and the light of God. And so if we want to kind of live the, the life that holds and enjoys the heat of God, we need all the practices that the Bible commends to us. That includes prayer and scripture and reflection, confession and silence and praise and study. And we're going to get to many of those in this series. But for now, just notice this. The first step towards the with God life is to be rooted in God by delighting in God. The praying life doesn't start with our voice. It doesn't start with our attempt to pray. It starts with God's voice. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd and my sheep know my voice. No prayer begins with learning to recognize the voice of the shepherd. In other words, prayer isn't a monologue. It's a two-way conversation in love. In prayer, we hear and meditate on the voice of God and then respond when we speak. But the first thing we do is to look at and behold and enjoy and delight in God's words. The poet Mary Oliver says that attention is the beginning of devotion. And so we need to face the reality that more than any other time in history, we live in an age of hijacked attention. People talk about the Silicon Valley attention economy. That means that when you go on Facebook, you're not the customer, you're the product. Your attention is sold and commodified to advertisers and content creators. We live in a world, literally, that has a financial incentive to hijack and co-opt your attention for hours at a time. So we need to ask a really serious question together. If you are a Christian, how are you fighting against the hijacking of your attention? Because the cost is that your attention won't be focused on the glory of God. Here's a few ideas. Maybe you want to consider a digital Sabbath where one day a week you lay aside your phone and don't check Twitter, don't check Instagram, don't uh, kind of view digital entertainment, but in its place you drink deeply from the presence of God. You spend quality time with others and you be present to the goodness of God all around you. For most of us, the best day to do something like that would be a Sunday 
You might want to do what I've heard people call parenting your phone. Like a child, put your phone to bed before you go to bed. Give yourself an hour to breathe. Wake it up in the morning after you wake up. Get a digital alarm clock if you need to. Do whatever you need to do to create some breathing room where your attention can just be on God. Break away from that expectation of constant connection and attention. Most importantly, let me challenge you this week to make it your priority to invest in becoming a person whose attention is captivated by God in his word. If you're not in the habit of reading the Bible, uh, we have a Bible reading plan that you might find helpful. There are kind of bookmarks on the welcome table at the back with a, a plan It's kind of two chapters a day from the Bible. But the most important thing isn't what plan you use, it's that you hear the voice of God. Whether that is a few verses or a few chapters, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that you make it your goal to organize your life around the presence and the practices of Jesus so that you can live from and for his deep abiding presence in your life. Prophet Isaiah put it this way when he described the transforming power of delighting in God. He said, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. You see the pattern there? The good life comes out of a trusting depth of relationship with God. But more than that, it's intensified when we stick our minds on him. We stick our minds and our hearts on God. We're just going to wrap up now, but let me finish with this quote from Charles Spurgeon. I found this deeply challenging this week. He says, prayer is the natural outgushing of a soul in communion with Jesus. Just as the leaf and the fruit will come out of a vine branch without any conscious effort on the part of the branch, but simply because of its living union with the stem, so prayer buds and blossoms and fruits out of souls abiding in Jesus. To be connected to Jesus is the source of the life of prayer that is so important to being his disciple. Because we're joined to him, we have access to his eternal life in God's presence. And that starts now, it starts today as we go deep into him in order to come out into the world to be fruitful and to go out to the ends of the earth in love. You know, I, I think for most of us, for me, a sermon series about prayer is maybe one part daunting and, daunting and another like, it just doesn't inspire me. Let me encourage you, if that's you, that all you need to flourish in the Christian life, and that includes to become a person who prays, is found inside of Jesus. First step this week isn't to go home and create a prayer journal, please do. The first step is to come to Jesus. Drink deeply from Jesus. Come to him and fix your attention on him and abide in him. He is the river that our tree is planted by. Our roots are nourished by his presence. Let me pray for us that this week we would begin and increasingly be a people that go deep into him.